0: Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on the Bigger Picture, and I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's been said that one of Yeb Sanyo's defining moments came during the 2013 UN Climate Summit in Warsaw, where, as the Philippines' chief negotiator, he underwent 14 days of fasting in solidarity with Typhoon Haiyan victims and all those already facing the impacts of the climate crisis. With nearly two decades of experience working to combat climate change, Yeb is the executive director of Greenpeace Greenpeace Southeast Asia and has been tired, tired. working towards achieving social and environmental justice, especially for developing nations. Now, ahead of all Environment Day, we're catching up with Yeb about issues related to the climate crisis and how he is campaigning for the defense of ancient forests and against carbon polluters, amongst many other things. Welcome, Yeb. How are you today?
1: Hello, Juliet. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing fine. It's uh, always a good to think of the reasons to celebrate uh, in the world that uh, that we live in,
0: mm-hmm. and uh, yes, and we always try to find some some silver lining, I suppose, right? And we will do that in this in the course of this interview, though it might get a bit depressing at some points. But uh, can we get to know you a, a little bit better? Yep. Yeah, um, I was reading that you were born into a family of revolutionaries. Um, but tell me, how did you get involved in the environmental movement, the climate justice movement, all of that?
1: Yes, as you mentioned. The kind of disposition that I have in terms of looking at the world from from the lens of uh, of, uh, social justice uh, runs in the family. And my environmental activism started way, way long ago. There was a time when nuclear power was... um, being heralded as a solution for the Philippines' energy problems. And that was the time of uh, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. when the first uh, nuclear power plant was being built here. Together with my brother, we founded the uh, Children Against Nukes uh, when I was, uh, I think, 10 years old. And, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and the, in fact, my parents influenced us into uh, coming up with the idea because uh, they were very active in the anti-nuclear power campaign during that time. And after that, I found myself looking at uh, many other big picture issues, including climate change, which was just starting to be discussed by the scientific community in the mid-80s. And uh, you know what, Juliet, um, I didn't really realize how much I was into the climate change issue when just uh, recently, rel- relatively recently, I was looking at um, the, the articles I wrote in high school when I was science editor of my high school paper. I realized I was writing a lot about climate change mm-hmm. um, and, and and that was a long time ago, and so i, I it was it was uh really interesting for me to realize that. but um one of the important personal moments that I've had that led me to be an environmentalist is a very personal experience. I planted a tree at home, mm-hmm. and during that time we were just renting, and my parents were just renting a place, so I planted a tree. And I took care of it, uh, just a, the shortcut version of this. Um, it grew up to a good height. But one day I found myself uh, walking from from school and I found the, the tree was gone and somebody had cut it. Oh, and so uh, it felt really bad for me. It felt very traumatic for me. It was a very tragic experience. And uh, I, my mother found me at the back of the house crying uh, and cradling oh, wow. the, the trunk of the tree in my arms. So... um. I I resolved at that time I would defend every tree from now on and uh, true enough I've been working in the environmental movement for as long as I can remember.
0: Yes, and here you are, um, Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. And um, as I alluded to earlier, you know, that that speech that you made in 2013, um, can you just remind um, our listeners, you know, what Typhoon Haiyan, or I think it was called Super Typhoon Yolanda, right, Um, in the Philippines? It was one of the most powerful uh, tropical cyclones ever recorded, am I correct? And uh, that, of course, happened in November 2013. Uh, Can you just remind us, you know, how it impacted the Philippines, but also you personally?
1: Yes, certainly. For the millions of people who had to live through the catastrophe of Super Typhoon Haiyan, that's the international name. Just for the sake of, uh, for the benefit of of, of you know, of the of our listeners, mm-hmm. the Philippines has a naming system for typhoons that uh, that is domestic naming, sure. and then you have the international name, uh, which is Haiyan, and we call it Yolanda in the Philippines. Uh, so. Uh, It is a super typhoon because it it is the strongest kind of typhoon and it will be difficult for those people who lived through it to forget uh, 8th of November 2013, early morning of uh, 8th of November 2013, when it struck with so much force, uh, uh, making landfall in the eastern part of the Philippines. And as as a Category 5 storm, which is the highest category of storms, it it left a massive um, trail of devastation. Uh, in the in the path that that it passed through and uh, it affected so many people Uh, uh, being the most powerful storm uh, in of all time for the Philippines and with wind speeds I think sustained at more than 150 miles per hour or 250 kilometers per hour
0: Um,
1: it's it it generated massive storm surges uh, from from the ocean that uh, made it even more destructive and one of the things that was um, that, that that made it very personal for me. It made landfall in my father's hometown in Tacloban City, and it left uh, at least six thousand people dead officially because we stopped counting. And from you know from what I gather when I went back home um, to my father's hometown, I spoke to a lot of people, and they said entire villages were buried uh, uh, or or were, were drowned, and so those people remain unaccounted for until now and we have all of these mass graves after Super Typhoon Haiyan. It damaged at least 1 million houses, destroyed um, 33 million, uh, literally 33 million coconut trees, which was the the staple industry in that region, major source of livelihoods for so many people there. And overall damage uh, is, is, is considered as the highest, it's the costliest storm in Philippine history at around Close to six billion dollars of, of damage. So uh, that was what uh, Super Typhoon Haiyan did. And you know, from from 2013, I, I also set it out, set out to be a time for me to reflect on what happened. And there's been a very interesting journey for me since since Super Typhoon Haiyan. So uh, at that time, I was also, as you mentioned, the chief negotiator of the Philippines. I was head of delegation during that time in the Warsaw Climate Summit, you know, uh, climate summits happen every year as part of the United Nations Climate Convention process. Yep. And when, when super typhoon struck, it was actually just three days before the opening, uh, formal opening of, uh, of the climate summit in, in Warsaw, COP19 as we call it. Mm-hmm. And I had a difficult task of uh, speaking on behalf of uh, the Philippines uh, as uh, we came to the realization that it left so much uh, destruction Um, and um, my own brother who was in in Tacloban city during that time survived thankfully Mm -hmm. Uh, survived uh, the the onslaught of the typhoon Um, but uh, after he survived he decided he will join the recovery efforts the rescue efforts and you know you know what struck me is how he remembers exactly how many dead bodies he carried with his own hands um, 73 dead bodies uh, in his own hands, uh, helping out the recovery efforts, and and on the Monday after uh, Super Typhoon Haiyan struck, I I was uh, uh, given the difficult task of of uh, speaking in the plenary yeah. of uh, the climate summit, and I actually prepared a speech a couple of days before. Uh, of course, Super Typhoon Haiyan uh, had already struck the country. Okay. Um, but I, I wasn't aware of the fate of my own friends, my own family members, my relatives in, in, in Tacloban City. Um, but uh, just a f- couple of hours before I delivered the speech, I I I, I received news that my brother had survived. So okay. that was really an emotional moment, but even if he had survived, I knew that he had very little, little food with him. He, it was a very difficult time. Um, there was a lot of looting happening in the, in the city. And we knew that uh, my brother was also trying to find food uh, and water. So as a, as a means of standing with him in solidarity, I declared during that same speech out of script, that um, I would refrain from eating any food for the duration of, uh, of the conference or until certain things have been fulfilled in the conference, most especially uh, meaningful progress in the negotiations. And I ended up not eating for 14 days because uh, truly there was, it was very slow in terms of any progress, uh, of uh, any good indication that the conference was seriously addressing um, the issue of uh, climate change. Okay.
0: And do you think that that speech, you know, and and everything that happened there, do you think that was a turning point in discussions about whether climate change was real, at least in the Philippines, you know, because I mean, in your speech at COP19, you did make the connections between that super typhoon and also uh, that being the effects of climate change. But uh, do you think that um, sort of brought it into the mainstream or or more people started talking about it?
1: Yes, when, when I was making that speech, I actually consulted scientists, uh, climate scientists, on the correlation of a warmer planet, and especially a warmer Pacific Ocean, That's right. uh, with the strength of, of the storms that we're experiencing, not just in the Philippines, that includes uh, most of the countries in Southeast Asia, uh, Taiwan, you know, the eastern part of Asia, um, and they confirmed to me that when, when the planet is warmer, and especially the sea surface temperatures are, are warmer, that would they call it loading the dice if you may because when the dice are loaded then you you end up uh with uh with numbers that are biased and so same with our oceans that, that are warmer it the bias turns towards stronger stronger storms and and yes it was a turning point i think in many ways because my my sense having been in the international the diplomatic process that's trying to um, come to a lasting solution uh the problem with uh, with the conversations you have in the political discussions is that a lot of it is uh, technical. A lot of it's about numbers, and, yeah. and to a certain extent, of course, political. But um, none of it is about the human face of of climate change, the realities that people suffer from. So, what I think what I think uh, I contributed to in terms of that speech is how people perceived the climate issue, that it's not really just a science issue per se, it's not just a political uh, issue, but uh, but more than anything else, it's, a, it's an issue that affects real people, real lives. And so um, the conversation, I think, changed uh, after that. And one of the things I think that helped the conversation is how a lot of uh, faith communities uh, started to talk about the human aspect of climate change. And a lot of of uh, spiritual traditions have uh, have uh, started to weigh in on the issue and and that was big because if, if you talk about people who practice a certain spiritual tradition that's billions of people and when church leaders and faith spiritual leaders start to talk about it whether you're muslim or or, or christian or buddhist then then the conversation Changes in terms of the texture, uh, the 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 depth and the and the breadth of the conversation becomes becomes bigger. So um, and therefore, it's not just in the Philippines that it changed. Um, in the Philippines, we know climate change profoundly because it affects us in in in, in very extreme ways. When whenever we get hit by, by by a strong storm, I mean, we have 20 typhoons every year, yeah. um, and increasingly. Uh, many of these typhoons have uh, have become very destructive because of climate change uh, precisely. So I, I don't want to claim credit for you know the shift in, sure. in the conversation that's happened because that was just one speech. But I'd like to think that highlighting the impact of a storm in relation to an ongoing climate summit gives us such an, an eye-opener and, and something that, makes it an important backdrop for a political gathering such as the the UN. Mm-hmm.
0: It, um, sometimes you're so far removed, isn't it, from the realities uh, at these sorts of uh, conferences and meetings. So this actually um, yeah, brought it right to the centre stage as such. Um, uh, let's just go for one quick break, Yet When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about you know your experiences as the Chief Negotiator. I'm uh, speaking today to Yeb Sanyo. He's the Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. He's also a climate activist. Um, it's another episode of There's No Planet B. And today we're focusing on Yeb as one of our climate justice heroes. It's also our World Environment Day special. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9 welcome back this is Earth matters on the bigger picture I'm Juliette Jacobs it's another episode of there's no Planet B where we want to give you everything you need to know about the climate crisis and joining me today is yep Sanyo he is the executive director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia he's a longtime climate activist and environmental activist uh, and he's sharing more about his work and um yeah so before the break yep of course you were telling us about um, what happened back in 2013 um you know in relation to super typhoon Yolanda and um, you know your the speech and the fast that you did at cop 19 at the time you know sort of bringing these these real-life issues and these real-life impacts uh, to the global stage as such. Now, can we um, just shift a little bit and talk about these meetings, you know, COPs and all of that? Um, I think there seems to be endless debate about who is responsible for the climate crisis, right? Um, I think in your speech as well, in 2013, you spoke about loss and damage, you spoke about financial adaptation. um, But, you know, what is your take on it? You know, there's, of course, there's historical emissions, there's uh, the countries that emit the most CO2 today, What's your uh, What's your take on that?
1: Oh, that's a very pertinent question when we talk about one of the biggest issues that we face as humanity. Who is responsible for it? Now, even the Climate Convention, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the most universal you know, treaty in in the uh, in the in the entire history of of, of the world, because uh, it has more signatories than any other international agreement. Yeah. There is a, a clear acknowledgement of uh, the historical um, context of climate change and what it says is uh, what the convention uh, asserts and therefore embraced by all of its 195 signatories at that time um, is that climate change has been caused by the industrial revolution uh, through the burning of fossil fuels that has caused uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Extraordinary levels of greenhouse gas emissions that that has disrupted the climate system so it's not a debate actually well, what the science is and it's the science is rather very clear um that uh in order for us to address climate change countries need to reduce emissions and so so the the convention was born in 1992 during the earth summit in rio de janeiro and in 1997 uh, the kyoto protocol was born so the the kyoto protocol is a Uh, if you may, a daughter treaty to the UN Climate Convention. And what the Kyoto Protocol uh, really uh, is all about is listing countries who should be doing certain actions, including very quantitative targets. So if you look at that uh, list of countries called Annex B of the Kyoto Protocol, and it just basically lists the names of countries. And most of those countries are in North America, in Europe, and includes uh, industrialized countries like Japan, Australia, uh, New Zealand so it's very clear that the accountability lies with the uh, richer countries with with countries who have used up um, fossil fuels who have used up that space of the atmosphere to to emit all of those greenhouse gas emissions that that brought them progress that brought them you know the kind of development level of development uh, uh, that we see now where they're able to benefit from that in terms of the infrastructure their economic situation, the jobs that they have, the basically all of the stuff that they enjoy uh, in, in their lives. Yeah. And and so what makes it debatable, actually, is who does that amongst them. And the, in the Kyoto Protocol, the biggest emitter, the United States, withdrew from the, the protocol at that time. And so they were never, uh, they never ratified. The biggest emitter, the United States, never ratified the Kyoto Protocol, so it was never uh, enforceable for them. Mm. And and that was the problem. And it, it continued to be like that. The finger pointing aggravated the situation. And then it turned to a point um, in the past 15 years, 15 to 20 years, we saw uh, how um, emerging economies, developing countries that was growing rather faster than anticipated, the finger pointing pointed to these developing countries then. And so it became a lot more blurred on who was accountable because, uh, you know, whether how it's reported in the media, or what kind of, of uh, narrative was being drawn up by the biggest emitters. It became, uh, it, 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 it also reached a point when um, the fingers were pointed directly at developing countries rather than uh, those who emitted the most. So yeah. Again, the science is clear. I don't think even especially now, the science is not debatable. The science is clear on who caused climate change. And even more so in the groundbreaking research, um, which was published in scientific journals, um, Mr. Richard Heedy offers, I think, one of the most compelling pictures to date of um, which institutions, which particular sectors of the world have extracted the fossil fuels that have been the root cause of climate change since the Industrial Revolution. So the study actually puts together historical emissions according to private entities or, or you know, entities uh, as a subgroup of, uh, of uh, entities, not just at the country or state level. Mm. And Mr. Hedy concluded that nearly two-thirds of carbon dioxide emitted since the 1750s. So he traced that all the way to the 1750s based on documents from these companies, uh, and and uh, he concluded that 90 fossil fuel and cement producers uh, are accountable for two thirds of green of the greenhouse gas emissions. So, uh, and and all of these companies are either domiciled in the North America or in Europe. So, some of them in Australia, some of them in Asia, but uh, um, a vast majority accountable for a lion share of the climate crisis are in in those countries, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, that are dragging their feet uh, in trying to uh, and also finger pointing to other countries. So historical responsibility indeed sits at the heart of uh, the debate on climate change and, and also more and more, more especially on the debate on climate justice, because after all, this is a matter of fairness. Uh, it, it, it is one of the biggest injustices in human history. Why? Because those, as we have started uh, our conversation with the impacts of climate change, those who suffer the most, uh, had little to do with uh, this problem.
0: Yeah. And the reason I also bring this up is because I mean, a lot of these discussions also then go to financing, isn't it? And and who should be paying for this and helping with adaptation, mitigation, you know, the, the developing countries who, as you pointed out, are the ones facing the brunt already, uh, but who had very little responsibility towards it, uh, don't have the, the finances, isn't it, to sort of um, uh, see to these things, whereas these countries who became rich from, you know, emitting and from, you know, uh, the Industrial Revolution do. Um, and I I do know that the rich nations you know promised to mobilize 100 billion dollars per year uh, officially beginning in, in 2020 where are we with that promise
1: yes that's that's a really important part of the, the the conversation because if we are to talk about fairness then those who again contributed the most to the climate crisis one of uh, the means of rectifying the, the unfairness is for them to share all of that wealth and mm-hmm. Uh, just just to emphasize that is not something we owe them but that's something they owe all of us and that's called climate debt now indeed in 2015 uh, in paris uh, a commitment of 100 billion dollars was made but unfortunately as of 2021 uh, with the tracking of all of the climate finance around the world only five countries have provided enough uh, from from all of those rich countries and unfortunately a lot of those finance that has been provided as well have, have strings attached and uh, I think the current estimates is are that that uh, it's roughly around 80 billion dollars have been mobilized out of 100 billion dollars so
0: no, even just yeah. seven,
1: seven years <laughs> since, they haven't even fulfilled that goal and a lot of those Uh, A lot of that money has a lot of strings attached, uh, a lot of uh, transparency issues uh, with respect to to those amounts of money. And when I say strings attached, you know, when when poorer countries receive that money, uh, either that was uh, amounts of of funding that have been committed before uh, and now being relabeled as climate financing, and therefore Uh a lot of double counting is happening in terms Mm -hmm. of those commitments, because just... Uh, for the benefit of those who are not familiar with uh, with development aid, the organization of uh, the OECD has committed at least around two percent of their GNP uh, for for development aid for uh, overseas aid to poorer countries. And then after Paris, they they also committed 100 billion dollars for climate finance. Now. You, you cannot claim that you're doing both because that needs to be additional so additionality is, uh, is is a very important element here and what we always see is it's not additional because they they promised that before uh, in in a different shape and then now they're they're just basically uh, putting a different name to it and and then and then still it's it's uh, some a lot of these uh, of these funds, uh, have strings attached in the sense that uh, you know there are conditionalities attached to it. Uh, for example, you have to behave in a certain way when you're voting for a certain international agreement you have to accept you know uh, bilateral trade agreements um, and, and so that's that's dangerous indeed
0: yeah. doesn't sound very much like that repaying a climate debt it sounds like they're kind of trying to control the narrative and the, the cash flow in that sense right according to what uh, would suit them best.
1: Absolutely, and and the reason for that is the the industry that's behind the problem of climate change remains powerful and remains uh, very influential over governments.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and is that figure of a hundred billion dollars uh, is that still significant? Is it should it be more? Uh, yeah, what what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, uh, there are varying estimates on what the world needs in order to one leapfrog over dirty development. So, meaning we don't have to copy the mistakes of the. In- countries that industrialize ahead of us, mm-hmm. and number two, to cope with the impacts. So to prevent the damage from severe typhoons, from rising sea levels, from crop failures, um, it's nowhere near $100 billion. The estimate is uh, at least $2 trillion uh, okay. for us to cope with uh, with climate change and to avert the, the crisis. So um, it's unfortunate, but uh, the promise of $100 billion falls way, way short.
0: And you said at the moment it's what, $80 billion? So not even...
1: $80 billion have been mobilized.
0: Mobilized, yes. okay. All right. And I remember last year when I spoke to some of our Malaysian uh, activists who went over uh, for COP26, Um, uh, developing countries also demanded additional money for loss and damage, right? And the costs accrued from climate change impact beyond what could be adapted to. Um, but I understand that no specific funding promises were made. Can you talk to me a little bit about that as well?
1: Yes. Um, well, I'm a, a bit uh, more removed from that conversation, having left the process uh, in, in 2015. But indeed, loss and damage is an issue. So loss and damage was not part of the conversation in the past. And in Warsaw, we managed to negotiate the Warsaw mechanism on loss and damage. What What that means is that we have formalized the discussion on loss and damage. And loss and damage happens when countries when communities can no longer adapt to climate change because prior to the inclusion of loss and damage in in the conversation we were only talking about climate mitigation and adaptation mm. so adaptation is how we cope but if we could no longer cope then that means we we incur losses people's lives are lost uh, homes are lost entire cultural heritage is lost you know entire islands disappear and so there's also not if not losses, then you you incur damages, and what we wanted to to see there was uh, rich countries acknowledging that loss and damage is already happening, and and it is it is the obligation of uh, not just not just a few countries uh, who who have benefited, but um, all of us uh, all countries. It's the obligation to protect those communities that are uh, losing lives, losing. Uh, land, losing a lot and, and, and experiencing all of the damage. And part of that is to prevent those from, from happening. And even and, and if they do happen, um, then there is a mechanism for uh, redress for that, that communities can run to if they experience uh, an, any catastrophic impacts. So that assures them that they can bounce back better and bounce back easily. And developed countries refuse to have that conversation on establishing a financial uh, mechanism so that we have some level of sense of security uh, for countries that are vulnerable to climate impacts. So, and, and that's that's sad. That's that's unfair uh, that they refuse to talk about this uh, and, and to establish a financial mechanism. So, I don't know why. I struggle to understand why. But... Uh, I guess the the logical reason is they want to preserve the status quo. They want to uh, avoid any sense of accountability because once they start, you know, acknowledging that, then for them it it's a very big political risk for them domestically as well. And and that's that's what makes it even worse because at the expense of future generations, at the expense of the entire planet, they are so short-sighted that they only look at their uh, political survival domestically.
0: Really, yeah, it's really, really um, disheartening. And uh, you mentioned just now a sort of figure that you know developing nations would truly need for climate adaptation. What would you say that figure is again?
1: That, the estimates run up to at least two trillion dollars. Okay,
0: all right. So, and uh, yeah, we still have these meetings, and we still haven't come to any sort of uh, concrete um, solutions. I suppose, right? Would you Would you agree with that?
1: Well. I don't want to misinterpret it and say that uh, it's a lost cause. Um, it is sure. not a lost cause. I think every kind of platform for conversation uh, and for dialogue and for diplomatic solutions is uh, is the right direction. You know, It's a step in the right direction. We cannot overemphasize the, the importance of the international diplomatic process uh, in order to solve the climate crisis. So it should continue. However... It remains very slow. So, as you said, COP 26 was the last meeting. So, it's it's been 26 years of climate summits, um, and even longer since 1992, right? Uh, yeah. From from the time of the of the Earth summit. So, it's uh, it's rather too slow. It's a process that will not be able to respond fast enough and adequate enough uh, to protect what needs to be protected. That means uh, securing uh, the safety of billions of people who will be experiencing all of these climate impacts. And so if it's slow enough, then a lot of other things need to be done beyond the the, the borders of those plenary halls, beyond the bounds of the international climate negotiations, um, as we also create pressure for them to act faster. So what that means is so we, we need to build solidarity like we have never done before. All countries, all people on this planet need to understand that we are facing uh, one the biggest crisis we've ever faced. There's a lot of difficulty happening around the world, uh, including human conflict. But those, all of those things, poverty will be aggravated uh, if climate change continues to persist uh, for the coming decades. And the reason why it's urgent is because the scientific community has um, sounded the loudest alarm bells. And in fact, in, in 2018, they said, we only have 12 years to go. Yeah. And so that, that means uh, now in 2022, we only have eight years to go before things get out of hand. What they call the point of no return for, for, for climate change. Uh, and, uh, and that particular technical threshold is 1.5 degrees beyond the kind of warming we've seen since uh, the start of the Industrial Revolution. So 1.5 degrees. We're now at 1.1. And so if we don't do anything drastic... Then we will breach 1.5 degrees in 8 years or all hell will break loose in terms of the impacts we will experience.
0: Okay, all right. Um, let's just go for one more quick break. Yep, yeah, When we come back, let's uh, find out more about you know what you're doing through Greenpeace Southeast Asia. I'm speaking today to Yeb Sanyo. He's the Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. It's another episode of There's No Planet B on Earth Matters, and we're focusing on climate justice heroes. Yep is our hero for today, and uh, we'll continue the, our discussion after this very quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on the Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's another episode of There's No Planet B. Today we're focusing on climate justice heroes. Yep, Sanyo. He's helping to explain, you know, the the differences between developing and developed nations in terms of, you know, historic emissions in terms of responsibility. But now uh, let's just talk a little bit about you, Yep. Um, so you did leave um, diplomacy, right, uh, to fight climate change. I think uh, that was the exact quote, and this happened back in 2015. Uh, what happened? I mean, why did you choose to leave diplomacy? Why did you go into uh, activism? As
1: Yes, um, the, the main reason why I left my role as a climate diplomat was, um, number one, it was really a process that uh, was just too convoluted, I, I, I describe it as such. Um, <laughs> it was very difficult to find progress there, meaningful progress was always evasive. I, while I invested so much of, of my career Um, in the climate negotiations and as chief negotiator for the Philippines for five years. I tried my best and I had faith in the process for a while. And then I realized this cannot go on like this. And I realized that we cannot rely solely on the institutions uh, in order to fight climate change. We need to do something broader. And in 2015, At the time I was at the crossroads, the interfaith community reached out to me. So uh, the interfaith community comprised of uh, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, and and many other faith traditions uh, reached out to me and said, why don't we try to look at this problem from that angle, from a spiritual angle, and we would like you to be our spiritual ambassador. Mm-hmm. So in 2015, I accepted that challenge, and I left my job as a climate negotiator and became a spiritual ambassador for a campaign called Our Voices. And um, one of the biggest things we, uh, we did during that time was organize a, a pilgrimage, uh, precisely because of the spiritual aspect of it. So I started the pilgrimage in Tacloban City, in my father's hometown, also super typhoon Hayans, Ground Zero. And then I traveled to many uh, other countries, including Vanuatu, which was dealing with the aftermath of uh, Cyclone Tam in mm-hmm. 2015. And the idea was for me to walk as much as I can from the Philippines. Of course, surrounded by, by ocean, that was <laughs> not, not possible. So I had to travel uh, through different modes. And... And then I walked through uh, Korea and walked uh, across uh, Southeast Asia. I found myself walking through Thailand and parts of Indonesia and uh, and then uh, uh, South Asia, India. The idea was also for me to walk through Africa, but my visa problems prevented me from doing that. You know, having a Filipino passport is one of the most challenging things to have. But uh, I didn't realize then, that, but okay. <laughs> and then... And then the and then the journey brought me to Europe uh, eventually, so which uh, ended in a fifteen hundred kilometer trek from Italy all the way to uh, Switzerland and then in into France and ending in Paris um, in sixty days. Wow! So um, that was what I did in two thousand fifteen after I left uh, my job as a climate negotiator. And then shortly after that, I had a lot of conversations with uh, with people, and it, it also brought the opportunity to work with, with Pope Francis, who in 2015 wrote a message, uh, an encyclical, a letter to everyone, to all people on the planet about the problem of climate change, about uh, the planetary crisis that we're in. And I had a wonderful, amazing journey since then because I've been talking to a lot of people about uh, that, that encyclical, which was titled Laudato Si. Mm-hmm.
0: That's you know amazing, isn't it? As you said, you know it's a it's a completely different reach of people, you know, when it comes from somebody like Pope Francis himself, isn't it? It's a completely different reach from you know all those halls and, and and negotiations and all of that.
1: Well, absolutely, because uh, what was really inspiring to see was how the spiritual dimension of this ecological crisis has been brought to the very front and center, mm. and you know I. One of the things I always say to the people I meet is, yes, we have a problem in the atmosphere, the climate crisis is real, but the biggest problem lies in our hearts. And unless we're able to look into our hearts, we're we're never going to be able to solve this problem. Because after all, this is a product of the economic order, the global economic order, the kind of system that we live in, the same system that has brought us the pandemic, the same system that continues to widen the gap between the rich and the poor, um, in this world. And, and so we, we need to come to terms with that, that we're never going to solve the climate crisis and, until we fight for social justice and, and economic justice as well. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I would say that some of the work, I mean, a lot of the work that Greenpeace Southeast Asia does, uh, you are, of course, as I mentioned, executive director. Uh, why did you choose to, or how did you get involved with, uh, with Greenpeace? And tell me a little bit about your work through this organization.
1: Yes, it was a beautiful alignment, uh, after I finished the pilgrimage, obviously I was out of a job and <laughs> and so the invitation came to me that uh, uh, Greenpeace was looking for an executive director for Southeast Asia. So I, I threw my hat in and for me it was uh, a wonderful culmination of a journey because I've always wanted to work for Greenpeace, I had very high regard for the organization. I've read a lot about Greenpeace as a child, and as I shared earlier with you, I founded the Children Against Nukes in the Philippines when I was a very young kid. And so that resonated so much for me. Um, but even before I joined Greenpeace, as a, as a climate diplomat, I worked closely with Greenpeace in many parts of the world, including having been able to sail on Greenpeace uh, ships before I even became Oh. Part of Greenpeace formally. So, um, it, And then, and Greenpeace also was part of, uh, I, I think I failed to mention earlier, before the pilgrimage uh, we did in 2015, we actually, one of the things we did after Super Typhoon Hayan to commemorate the first anniversary of Super Typhoon Hayan, we organized a walk from what we call Kilometer Zero. There's a marker in the heart of the capital, Manila, okay. called Kilometer Zero. And we walked from there all the way to ground zero in Tacloban city. Juliet, that's 1,000 kilometers. I don't know the comparison in Malaysia on on distances, but it's 1,000 kilometers from Manila to Tacloban. And we walked all the way for 40 days. Um, So many of those who joined me were activists from Greenpeace. And so I, I bonded with them very, very much in those 40 days of walking and so, yes indeed, it was, a, it was a clear alignment of values. I, I really found myself uh, working for an organization that, uh, that uh, whose, whose values and work had, uh, resonates with my own personal views of the world. So, and the most important I think of which is uh, our, uh, the principle of nonviolence uh, and effecting change in the world in a peaceful way. So that was very, compelling for me to join Greenpeace. Mm-hmm. And now uh, I've been with Greenpeace for close to seven years. Um, I, I've been this job because I've, I've, I've been working with passionate people uh, and probably one, among the most courageous people I've ever met uh, and working on very important issues in Southeast Asia, especially working on preserving the ancient forests of Southeast Asia. You know, so, some people probably don't realize that the forests of Southeast Asia, including, of course, vast areas in Malaysia and Indonesia, some of it in in Thailand, uh, Philippines, but uh, if we lose the forests of Southeast Asia, you know, there's no way we will solve the climate crisis because uh, that's how the the world works. Even if we transform the, the energy system, we get rid of fossil fuels and we start driving electric cars, you know, That's a good thing, but it will not bring us anywhere near solving uh, climate change. We need to uh, protect what remains of Southeast Asia's forests if we are to avert the climate crisis. That's why we're so invested in the campaign to save the remaining forests of Southeast Asia. And that puts Southeast Asia on the map of what is a globally significant battlegrounds on climate
0: change mm-hmm. I, I did mention that at the intro because that was uh, something that caught me you know your work ancient forests and that is something that is that we hold uh, that we you know are guardians of and we don't seem to realise that or at least some of the people in positions of power don't seem to realise that I mean the rate of deforestation in Malaysia I don't need to tell you about that um, you know very short term sort of No foresight, Pretty much, right? When it comes to development, Uh, when we try to say, you know, economic development versus, you know, preserving our forests, those conversations aren't happening. Um, So you, so those are some of the uh, core work that you guys are focused on. Um, Is there anything specific that you wish people understood about your work? Because I mean, let's admit it can be a very thankless job sometimes, right? You did mention some of the folks you work with, some of the bravest people that you know. Any misconceptions that exist that you'd like to clear up?
1: Oh, absolutely a lot of misconceptions, even, <laughs> even myself, because I'm, I'm relatively new to Greenpeace. If you look at uh, the, the the amount of time I've been in the organization, we have colleagues who've been there for about 15, 20 years. Uh, and so there are perceptions that I had before I joined Greenpeace. And maybe a lot of misconceptions is that Greenpeace is, um, is too radical.
0: Mm, mm, yes. So...
1: I'd say that we take that as a badge of honor when we are described as radical, but I'd like to, I'd like to correct that uh, misconception because a lot of things that Greenpeace does is not so radical given the context of the problem. So the problems are radical, actually. When we talk about extinction, uh, mass extinction of species, the loss of the entire forests of Southeast Asia, that's a radical problem. So what we're doing is nowhere near radical uh, compared to the problem uh, we're just really standing up for what is right, and and for me, uh, that that's an important context. That when when we see a problem so big, when your house is burning, like the young people say now, um, it's not radical to you know to find a way to stop the fire.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's what we're trying to do. Maybe what people do see uh, are the hard actions that uh, make us look radical, like the very dangerous things that we do because part of the design or the DNA, if you may, of Greenpeace is to put our body where our mouths are. So okay. put your body on the line. But, but many people probably don't realize we have the infrastructure, we have the training to do that. We don't necessarily put ourselves in harm's way because, because that's, if, if we do that, that violates our principle of nonviolence because we cannot be violent upon ourselves as well. So when you when you see us hanging from a bridge or from a smokestack or hanging uh, on a ship, uh, one of the most amazing things I've done as executive director of Greenpeace is um, I'm, I'm an artist. So whenever there's an activity or an action, for example, the one we did in 2019, we blockaded a palm oil. Ad- I'd like to be very clear, a dirty palm oil shipment. When we say dirty palm oil, it came from very suspicious sources, meaning those producers, destroyed forests before they, they they planted oil palm that produced the palm oil. So we don't like that because uh, if you have to produce palm oil by destroying forest, that's not going to work. So we were blockading a, a shipment of that in Sulawesi. And my job was to paint the side of the ship that says stop deforestation. <laughs> and, and we managed to do that. And if you look at that on YouTube or on, on social media... It looks a very dangerous thing to do, and it is if you're not trained. But we are trained to do that, and we have the capacity to to deal with uh, with situations like that. Uh, we have professional boat uh, boat pilots. We have professional climbers uh, who who mount those ships who, who climb all of those um, um, oil depots. So I'd like to I'd like to tell people in a, a very honest way that uh, we train ourselves to do that. And one of the things you would see. When, whenever we do actions like that, is we never hide our faces. Mm. Maybe now, during the pandemic, we have to wear masks, uh, but that's not because we're hiding. So generally, Greenpeace activists don't hide their faces when they stand up for something, because we believe in uh, being identified. We don't want to be anonymous radicals. Uh, we are open. We are, our, our default is sunlight, not the darkness. We want to show that there is a better story to tell here. It's not just the doom and gloom. It's not that just the, the kinds of uh, extinction that's going to happen. It's not just people suffering. But we're also painting well, one of the biggest endeavors, I think, or if you if you can put it uh, this way, one of the biggest important business of Greenpeace is to spread hope. And that's why we try to go viral as much as we can when, when we undertake this courageous, brave uh, actions that that many people see externally. So one, that's a very important misconception. I think another important misconception, Juliet, is that Greenpeace is sort of. Uh, I like to be very, very frank about this. Greenpeace might be seen as a as a Western organization. Yeah. And and maybe there's a good reason why, because you know many international NGOs uh, were established in the West before they came to Asia. But what many people don't know is that, for example, in Southeast Asia, all of us in the management team of Southeast Asia are Asians. And every time we create our strategic plans for what needs to happen in Southeast Asia, for us to contribute to solving the world's problems, all of that is from the lens of Southeast Asians. So that's very important. If we are trying to do, uh, you know, run projects in Malaysia, all of that is driven by a theory of change from Malaysians. So we will never bring ideas outside of of Malaysia and force that upon Malaysians. The same in the Philippines, the same in Indonesia. We always embrace the problem from the perspective of, of communities who are affected by the problem. And, and that's something that we've been encouraged in Greenpeace Southeast Asia since I became Executive Director. I've also fostered the idea that you need to be with the communities. Uh, so just even the the words we use in our vision. Previously, we 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 would say the communities we work for. Now we we say the communities we work with. Mm. And then also when we say we have to stand up against this and stand up against that, now we say we stand for something. So I'd like people to think that Greenpeace stands for something, instead of just looking at Greenpeace as standing against a lot of things.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Yep, for joining me today. Um, before I let you go, it is Environment Day on World Environment Day on the fifth of June. This year's theme is, of course, only one Earth. Um, you know, in a nutshell, I suppose. What message would you have, maybe for the international community or anyone you know listening on the importance of fighting climate change, or should I say the climate crisis? Actually, I should say.
1: That's right. So yes, that that is a very important point, Juliet. We should we should first acknowledge it as a crisis. Because in reality, it is a crisis. And then an important thing that everyone should understand, the international community in particular, is that our generation is the generation that will solve the climate crisis. We are expected by future generations to do that. And we should embrace that opportunity. Otherwise, it's going to be too late. So let's hope that future generations would remember us for being the generation that found the will and the courage to confront this crisis rather than the generation who chose not to act. And my final point is that our children deserve better. This is a problem that will be inherited by the future generations. So for all of the CEOs, for all of the government leaders, for all of of you who have children or who who have loved ones uh, who are young and who will have children in the future, please think about our children, and maybe you can look them in the eye and tell them you have done your best.
0: Thank you so much, Yep, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Yeb Sanyo, Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. If you'd like to find out more about Greenpeace, just head to their website, greenpeace.org. They're on all social media. And yep, you, of course, have a very strong Twitter following. Uh, you know, if anyone's interested to follow you, what's the best way that they can do that?
1: Yes, please do follow me on Twitter. I will be posting uh, my tweets about this uh, conversation as well. Thank you. Fortunately I'm not a big Instagram user, so Twitter <laughs> okay. would be the best way.
0: Okay. All right. Well, my thanks again to you for speaking with me today. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash earth, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.